0: Okay, Full disclosure here, we're going to be talking about the tribulation, and just between you and me, I don't get up in the morning and think, wow, I get to go talk about the tribulation. Because I'll be be honest, it's it's not fun, and today's talk is uphill. But there are so many reasons why I talk about it today. A, we're talking about end times, and this is in the Bible, and I can't avoid it. Secondly, I think deep down inside, we all feel that we're headed for some place and it's not good. I don't mean personally, but in this world. And if we don't talk about it, if we don't deal with the elephant in the room, then we could even be led to question, is the world gonna rock on in the pain that we feel forever? Are we always gonna have the injustice? Are we always gonna have the racism? Are we always gonna have the abuse? I mean, we talked about this earlier. We've lived in a culture for about the last 25 years where there's more and more discussion of what's politically correct and politically incorrect, and yet there's more hate being spoken today than ever before. And we look at this world and we think, is it going to go on forever? So for that and other reasons, it's important for us today to take an honest look at the seven-year period of time that the Bible calls the tribulation. We talked about this last week. Jesus' evaluation of it is in the Gospel of Matthew, where he said three things about the seven-year period of time yet to come. He said, then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. Well, I'm a history buff, and I've studied a lot of the things that have happened: the wars, the famines, the crises, the plagues and so on and so forth, bad things that have happened to our world. A lot of bad stuff has happened. Bad stuff has happened that has killed great numbers of people. So it catches my attention when Jesus said, "When the tribulation comes, it will be a time unequaled from the beginning of time until now." Then, second thing he said, it would never be equaled again. And thirdly, He said, if the days had not been cut short, in other words, if it wasn't relegated to a seven-year period of time, no one, wow, no one would survive. So I think it's important for us to pull back and look at that period of time and ask some questions. When I was a kid growing up, and I heard my dad speak about this, especially as he would preach through Revelation, the most chilling statement about the tribulation is in Revelation 9, 6. It said, in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. Well, I think in these times in which we're living right now, right probably before the tribulation period, the expression that I always use is that we feel the chill winds coming off this tribulation period. And what I'm noticing happen in our culture today, there's a growing uh, sense of hopelessness and suicide is almost pandemic And it breaks my heart every time I hear about something like that. And yet the Bible tells us that during the tribulation, and I don't know that I can explain it, I don't even uh, fully understand it, but the Bible does indicate that in the tribulation period, there'll be people who try to take their lives and won't be able to do so. So it is a horrific period of time. Now, uh, the question that we want to ask today, especially those of us who are God followers, who have some understanding of God, is why? Why the seven-year period of time? Because if God is in control of the universe, why would there be this seven-year period of time that's the worst possible time that we can imagine, and worse than any other time in history? Well, before we get into why, and we'll, we'll tackle that today, that's what the sermon is about, let's be sure we know what it is. What is the tribulation? What is the purpose of the tribulation? Well, maybe this isn't the best way of explaining it, but this is kind of how I see it in my mind. It is God coming down from heaven with his stopwatch, punching it and saying, it's closing time. The world as we know it is not going to rock along forever. See, here's the thing. In our series Clash of Dynasties, we've really called it right. There seems to be a stalemate. We've, we see God at work in the world, and we also see evil at work in the world. And it's very clear. There are d- there are competing dynasties. God is doing things and Satan is doing things. There's God's dynasty of righteousness and there's this world's culture of wickedness. And there's there's this headbutting going on, and we feel it. It feels like a stalemate. And there's part of us who say, well, if God is in control of the universe, why are we gonna, why are we going on like we are right now? Why doesn't God just stop it? You know, I know the answer to that theologically, and we'll give it to you in just a moment. But there's a part of me that, at least viscerally, I feel like asking that question sometimes. When I see hate, when I see injustice, when I see abuse, when I see racism, uh, when I see greed, when I just see how that the power centers of this world abuse and take advantage of others, even though I know theologically why God doesn't stop, but there's a part of me that just cries out, God, why don't you just end this thing? Why do you let this keep going? Well, here is what I do know from Scripture. I'll tell you first, and then I'll show you in the Bible. God has delayed this showdown with Satan because of his purpose of redemption. Let me read that to you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says he isn't really being slow about his promised return, although it feels like that, right? I mean, how many of us are like, God, how about today? Today would be good. Today would be a good day. All of you in school or all of you at the college or university you would say, thank you, God, if you came back today. I don't have to turn that... You know, i turn that paper in tomorrow. You know, I mean, we, we have a million reasons why we're like, God, today would be really, really cool. Um, but, but Peter says God's not being slow about his retar- promised return, even though it sometimes seems that way. But he's waiting for the good reason that he's not willing that any should perish, and he is giving more time for sinners to repent. Okay, here's the thing. I mean, if you look at our design, there are two dynasties. There's a a dark dynasty that we're all born into, and there's God's dynasty of light. What we have just read is that God doesn't want anybody to be in the dark dynasty. Even though we're born in there, God wants us to take our attendance card, turn it over to Jesus Christ, and be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And here's what God does know. At the moment that he Punches that watch and says it's closing time. That's the end. As far as our culture today, as we know it, and people being able to transfer, that would be the end of that. Here at New Spring, during this series clash of dynasties, we're watching something really wonderful happen. We've had an extraordinary number of people give their lives to Jesus Christ. We didn't really see that coming. We prayed for it, but we're just we're blown away by it. Last weekend, we had over a hundred people give their lives to Jesus Christ. Now, now, just in the essence of full disclosure, I would have loved it fine if Jesus came back six weeks ago. But what if he had? What if he had? There are people in the kingdom of light who wouldn't have been there. So do you understand what I'm getting at? I mean, we want God to shut this thing down. We want God to say, that's it. That's the end of injustice. That's the end of racism. That's the end of hate. That's the end of immorality. That's the end of adultery. That's the end of people lying and cheating one another. We want that to happen, yet God is saying... I'm going to let this clash of dynasties go on a little longer because there are just more people I want to pull out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But there's no getting around it, is there? We feel that strange tension, don't we? It's an it's a uncomfortable, awkward tension. And here's the reason why it's so awkward. And, and, and I think I would have a pretty easy time proving this to you. And I won't spend a whole lot of time. Perhaps we will someday. But I'll tell you what makes it awkward. God's in charge of the universe. Satan's in charge of this world system. It would be like, let's just say that you, if you're of age and you, know, you have a grown child, let's say you give your grown child the house next door to you. And they give it away to your worst enemy. Well, legally, that house is now owned by your worst enemy, and it wouldn't be very much fun living where you're living. And even though it was you who gave the house to your child, you can't get away from the fact that there's a legal reason why your worst enemy is living next door. Well, when Adam and Eve were created by God, Adam and Eve surrendered kingdom authority of this world over to Satan. And from that time on, we live in this awkward scenario in which God is in charge of the universe, but Satan is in charge of this world system. And right now, we feel that tension. But here's where the tribulation comes in. It is God saying that he's not going to let it go on forever. And not only is God going to individually redeem people like you and me, and this is a beautiful thing. If you love the planet today, celebrate this. God is going to redeem the planet. God is going to pull this planet back to his management. A couple Two or three nights ago, the thermostat on my HVAC system at, hi, at my house... It went crazy. I just couldn't get the thermostat to hold on the setting. You know what? I did it the same thing you did. I got my iPhone, and I Googled my thermostat, and I learned how to return it back to manufacturer settings. Now, that's the cool thing. The tribulation is all about God taking our planet and returning it back to manufacturer settings where there won't be the awfulness of the culture that is managed by Satan today. God's going to finish this up, and here's the thing. If you in this world, especially many of your Christ followers, if you feel it getting worse today, there's a good reason for that. This conflict, this clash of dynasties is intensifying because Satan, although he cannot control the future... He knows God well enough to know that God doesn't lie. And Satan, hey, he can read Revelation just like you and I can. He can read the prophetic books. And here's what the Bible says about him. And if you feel his force is getting stronger and more intense in our world today, check this out. Revelation 12, verse 12, But woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, heads up, because he knows his time is short. Hey, that's why the intensity is building right now. Satan knows he's running out of time. God's getting out his watch. He's about ready to come down and say, ladies and gentlemen, it's closing time. And Satan knows it. And we feel that in our world today. Now, if you want to find the tribulation of the Bible, it's in a lot of places. But if you want to find a lot of ink devoted to it, you'll find it in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. there's some awful stuff. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time there today but it is the worst period of time in world history. In fact, if I read it correctly, it looks like half the world's population will die. It's an awful period of time. Thankfully, if you were here last weekend, you saw that those who follow Jesus will be evacuated before it happens. But why? That's what I want to get to today. Why the tribulation? Why is it such an awful time? Okay, this is really big. I want to give you There are three things that are going on in the tribulation at the same time, and they sort of combine to make this time so awful. Here they are. So just if you want to write these down or just keep them in your head as we explore the tribulation, first of all, God is judging the world system. Number two, God is going to allow Satan and his program to basically run unrestrained. See, right now we live in a world in which Satan is in control of the world system, but God restrains him as to how much he can do, how much damage he can do. You know. So oftentimes we have disasters in our world, and when they happen, we wonder, where is God? Because it's like God allowed this to happen. I'll ask you the question, why aren't they a lot worse than they are? Because God restrains. I'll give you a good example of this. In the Old Testament book of Job, Satan wants to get at Job, but he accuses God of putting a hedge around him. In effect, Satan says, you won't let me touch him, you put a fence around him. That is a great way of explaining the way our world works today. Satan's in charge of the world system, but God restrains how much he's able to do. In the tribulation, God said, you don't want me, I'll step out of the room. That's the second reason tribulation is what it is. The third reason for the tribulation, this is beautiful, it's my favorite part. God is just finishing his plan of redemption. God wants to pull the world back to himself. He wants to bring the earth back to manufacturer settings. There's just some stuff that God has got to shake out before that can happen. With that in mind, I want to unpack those three things for you pretty quickly today as to why this seven-year period of time is what it is. Let's go to, let's go to one of the more painful ones. This is one of the reasons I didn't get up excited about preaching this morning because who, who, who enjoys talking about God judging the world system, but it's got to happen. When you look at this world, the, the thing about it that you always notice is whenever there's a power-based form, I hate to say it this bluntly, it's basically evil. I mean, that's, that's just human nature. It is flawed, broken human nature. There are individuals that love God. There are individuals that want to do something good, but what happens at the moment it becomes systematized? It usually turns dark. Hey, how do you feel about Politics today, but you say that that's pretty much God's will being done in the earth. I don't think so. What about education? What about entertainment? I got one for you. What about religion? I mean, I live in a world of churches and church leaders, but I will tell you this: pretty much any time religion becomes systematized, there's a system that's dark, and you start pulling back the covers, and there's some pretty ugly junk. Can I get a witness on that? That's the thing. That's, that's just the way the world works. Whenever there's a system, it tends to be against God. In fact, you can pull back from all of those systems and make it, a, make it a collective, if you wished, and you have what the Bible calls the world. If you study the Bible through the years, and many of you have, you notice that from time to time, God talks about the world in a negative context as though it's the enemy of God. I'll give you an example. We covered this one back in the Jesus life. In the book of 1 John, God says, don't love the world and don't love the things in the world. And he goes on to say, if anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in that person. Now, I think you and I know he's not talking about the planet. I mean, substitute the word planet makes no sense. If God said, don't love the planet, don't love the things in the planet, if anybody loves the planet, the love of God is not in him. That doesn't make any sense at all. We should love the planet. God has left us here to to manage it. He's not talking about the planet. And he's also not talking about the people in the world because here's the thing, if you substitute people for world there, it makes no sense. If God said, don't love the people, don't love the people in the world, if anybody loves the people in the world, the love of God is not in him. That's not what he's talking about. We're told to love each other. When God says, don't love the world, and that you come across all those expressions in the Bible that talk about the world, what God is talking about is a system. It is the system that drives the world. It is the system that is greedy. It is the system that is godless. It is the system that wants to deny God the glory and the worship that he deserves. And as I've already pointed out, that system is in every entity of life, including religion. It is the system. It is a broken system that is managed and controlled by Satan and his demons. There are so many places that I could take you to in the Bible that would unpack it for you, but I want to take you to Psalm 2, real quickly. The book of Psalms is a really cool book. It's, it's a song book, and there are 150 psalms in the Bible. But a good chunk of the psalms are what we call messianic psalms, which means these are psalms that prophesy the coming of the Messiah. One of the, Psalm 23 is one of those. One of the strongest psalms, Messianic psalms, in fact, my personal favorite, is Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, the psalmist is writing about the coming of Messiah. The weird thing about this, and we're going to see this in just a moment, the psalmist is writing about Jesus like he's already here. But what he is going to do is he's going to talk about how all these systems react to God. Let's read this and watch it. In Psalm 2, verse 1, what fools the nations are to rage against the Lord. How strange that men should try to outwit God. For a summit conference of the nations has been called to plot against the Lord. That's Jehovah God, Father God, and his Messiah, Christ. That's Jesus. Look at verse 3. Come, let us break his chains, they say, and free ourselves from all this slavery to God. In other words, God is not a useful hypothesis for us. We don't want to imagine him. We don't want to think about him. And most of all, we don't want to hear about junk like the Ten Commandments and junk junk that tells me, that I shouldn't do what this culture says, what the system says is okay to do. And basically, what the psalmist imagines is all the powers, all the systems of the world are basically coming together to say, let's flip God off with both hands and tell him we don't want to hear what he has to say. Well, that's what's going on today, isn't it? I mean, for sure. Sure. And as I said, and I just want to stress this, it's not just going on in the you know, anti-God segments. It's actually going on in so-called Christianity today. I mean, I'm so sick and tired of reading Christian writers who basically are disregarding what the Bible has to say and inventing whole new kinds of belief systems in order to be socially palatable to our culture today, the world that God is ultimately going to deal with. So how is God feeling about that? We live in a time where the laws of morality are being rewritten. The laws of marriage are being rewritten. The laws of success, the laws of personal freedom are being rewritten. Is God up in heaven shrugging his shoulders and wringing his hands? No, no, no. Psalm 2 verse 4, but God in heaven merely laughs. He's amused by their puny plans. But here is the thing, and this is so important that we grasp this, the world system. The system, not the planet, not the people in the planet, the system is Satan's dynasty. It is what is in this clash. There is God's program and there is this world system. I want to read to you a verse in which the, this is Jesus talking, and he's talking about the world. Read it with me. He said in John fifteen eighteen. this is the night of his arrest before his crucifixion. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. With everything that we've talked about right now, I think you understand that I can legitimately change or substitute the, world's, the word system for world. Let's read it that way. Jesus would have said, If the system hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the system, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the system, but I've chosen you out of the system. That is why the system hates you. I don't know about you, but I feel like I don't fit very well in the culture that is out there. But I'm totally cool with that because Jesus said he called me out of the system. If I belong to the system, I would be cool with everything and everybody would be cool with me. How do you feel about that? Now, the tribulation is about God judging the system. I mean, here's the thing God cannot let go what's going on in our world today, and He is going to judge it. And when you read about the horrors of the tribulation, is God judging? Somebody would say, Well, well, Mark, I just don't see God as a judge in my imagination. Well, you don't see God at all in your imagination. God isn't known by imagination; He's known by revelation. You're not even known by imagination. How would you want somebody to imagine what you're like who's never met you? Of course, the only way that anyone could truly know you is to either hear about you from someone who truly does know you, or you are to, to get to know you. And so, for someone to say, I mean, one of my favorite statements, statements every once in a while for someone to make to me because I just want to shrug my shoulders every time I hear it. Someone will say, "Well, well, my God wouldn't do this. You you don't own a God." No. God is God. But here's the problem, and and, and, and I think this will help us all feel a little better. One of the reasons that we have a hard time imagining God as a judge is because we live in what many theologians call the age of grace. What do they mean by that? You saw it earlier. Where God is like being patient because he wants Everyone, everywhere to come into his dynasty. So here's what God is saying. He is saying to me and to you and the whole world, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how you felt, you come right now and the blood of Jesus Christ will cover up all your sins and you can be forgiven and God will take your heavenly attendance card and transfer it out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And we hear that message. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. And as long as we hear it that way, then we're okay but something really quirky happens when the culture as we know it hears this message of God is willing to forgive anything, and they take it to a toxic place, which is to suggest that anything you want to do is okay. That is cosmically fatal. Cosmically fatal. To take the idea of God's loving, forgiving, forgiving grace and to extrapolate that concept to the idea that God doesn't care, you can do anything you want to do, and God is the pillboy boy, boy in the sky, that is cosmically, eternally fatal. And that's what we have going on in our world today. Folks, God is a judge. I mean, it's very clear from Scripture. When Adam and Eve sinned, he judged them. They were expelled from the garden. We talked about the times of Noah. God judged those antediluvian times with the flood. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, their wickedness, and God judged those cities. Last summer in our series, Kings and Queens, God said over and over to Israel, if they did not turn from their idols, he would allow them to be gone, or taken into captivity, and he judged them. The greatest judgment of God is on a Roman cross where God judged his own son for your sin. You want to see the judgment of God? Then you look at the nail prints in Jesus' hands. You want to see the judgment of God? Look at the crown of thorns that were beaten into his scalp. Do you want to see the judgment of God? Look at the gobs of spit that were ejected in Jesus' face. If you want to see the judgment of God, you see the Savior, his own son, hanging on a cross for six hours, suspended there, because your sin and my sin deserved eternal judgment. And in the justice of God, somebody had to pay. And God put his son on the cross. Every once in a while, people will say, well, the Romans crucified Jesus. They did the action. Someone will blame the Jews for killing Jesus, but the Bible tells us it was God who put him there, and he was there because of your sin and my sin. Don't say the Romans did it. Don't say the Jews did it. He is there for our sin. One of my favorite, one of my favorite stories is a preacher told about having a dream, and in his dream, he saw a Roman soldier nailing the nails into Jesus Hands, and he said he was so moved by that that in his dream he reached out to take that Roman soldier's hand and pull it back as the hammer was suspended. And he said, As the Roman soldier turned to look at me, it was my face. No. God is serious. He is serious about sin, and His justice demands that it be paid for. And He judged our sins in Christ. You know, through the years, I've had good people have a hard time sorting out how a God of love could allow people to go to hell. My favorite statement on that is by the great intellectual C.S. Lewis. He said this, there are two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, "Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, "Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Can I read that one more time? There are two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, your will be done. Hey, if you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's you. You said to God, I want your will to be done in my life. And then he said, those to whom God says, your will be done. You don't want me. You don't want truth. You'd rather have a lie than truth. You'd rather have foolishness than wisdom. You'd rather have this world than Jesus? God says, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Now today, I want to just be very honest with you and very forthright. Because here's what's going on in our world today. We have a system that's becoming intensively or intensely more and more ungodly. And you see God at work. I really do believe this is a moment for us to ask ourselves, which dynasty do we want to be part of? Because I'll tell you what's troubling me. I see this world system getting more and more against God, and I see people who claim to be Christians living out their lives and thinking like the world system and yet pretending to be part of God's dynasty. And we've seen enough already to know today that God is into choice. God is into you and me making a choice. So what I want to do right now is I want to take you to, as far as I know, the best chapter in the Bible to explain the world system. And not only does it explain the world system, it explains why we are where we are today. The most brilliant person I've ever known in my life. He's in heaven today. Longtime New Springer. He was one of our deacons. He was also the longest-serving judge in Sedgwick County. And before he, became, before he was on the bench... He had actually been a lawyer for the state of Kansas and had tried some huge cases through the years. I used to love, he and I would just get in his truck and drive. We used to both take Thursday off, and he would always want to show me some little Kansas town. And he would always take me out and introduce me to a judge there, and we'd always have lunch. And he would tell me the stories of this particular town. And in the truck on the way out, he would tell me about trying this case or trying that case. And, I mean, he would just keep me spellbound. Brilliant, brilliant man. Um... His name was Paul Clark. And I remember years ago at the old location, I was speaking on Romans chapter 1, and this man who had seen so much of the world, I mean, my goodness, even when he was on the bench here in Kansas, a lot of times when there were really high-profile dicey cases, they were assigned to his court. I remember we had a quadruple murder case here in the year 2000, and I'll never forget, I got a phone call from Paul, and he said, pray for me, Pastor, they're going to assign this to my court. Well, I'd just gotten, speaking, speak, gotten through speaking on this chapter, and I'll never forget as this brilliant man walked forward and he met me and he clasped my hand and he said, Pastor, I finally understand the world. I want to take you to the chapter that Paul said after hearing, I finally understand the world. You ready? Because we're asking the question, why is God going to judge the world? And in Romans chapter, and we're going to need to read a little while because I want you to feel this. I want you to own it personally, not just hear Mark say it. I want you to own this personally, and it's so critical given the times that we listen to. Okay, ready? Or that we live in, rather. Romans chapter one, verse eighteen: The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against two things. God, God's mad about two things. What's He mad about? Verse eighteen godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. What is godlessness? It's basically just living as though God doesn't exist. It's not saying God doesn't exist. It's living as as though he doesn't exist. In other words, my life is all about me and what I want, and I make up the rules, and I want to do what I want to do. I'm doing it my way. That's what God's upset about. Because he intended for us to live listening to him. Then the second thing is wickedness. That is sin. That is just ugly, bad, sinful choices. So God is upset about godlessness and wickedness. And in that culture, people who suppress the truth. Whoa, we're living in that time right now. Have you ever noticed this politically incorrect to say anything God says is wrong is wrong? Because if you say that God, something God says is wrong is wrong, next thing you know, you, that's hate speech. But it's not hate speech, is it? It's just that in this world system that God is ultimately going to have to judge, the system suppresses truth. When we were, let me read that one more time. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I mean, my goodness, we're living in that world today where if a student wants to pray after they have earned the rank of valedictorian, how dare they pray in a spot that they've earned academically because wicked men suppress the truth. I mean, God called this thing thousands of years ago. It's not new. Since... What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. I have good friends who are nontheists, and they'll tell me something like this: they'll say, Mark, if God ever proves himself to me, I guess I'd have to believe in God. You no, know, God just doesn't feel that way. Let me tell you how God feels. You ever see a Kansas sunset? You ever see the Rocky Mountains? You ever hear a newborn baby cry? You ever take biology and look under a microscope? You ever look into a telescope and see the myriad stars that we know are just a, a minuscule fraction of all that exists? Have you ever felt the love of a, a woman or a man? See, the way God looks at it is we don't have any excuse. He has shown us the essence of who he is by what he's created. And he goes on to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. In other words, even though they were thinking, they they couldn't make sense of it anymore. And their foolish hearts were darkened. (laughs) One of my favorite lines in the Bible. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. I love to read the Bible in New Testament in Greek, which is language written in. And the word wise there is the Greek word sophos, S-O-P-H-O-S in English characters. You know what word we get from sophos? Well, sophisticated is one of the derivatives. So God is saying, professing themselves to be sophisticated. Hey, hey I was born at night, but not last night. If I was bringing this message at Harvard University, I know they would say Mark's not very sophisticated. They'd probably be right about that. Was like, you know, you know, here's the thing. If we were talking about God in a lot of places in our world system today, they would roll their eyes and shrug, shoulders at, shrug their shoulders at us. Because they professed themselves to be sophos, sophisticated. But look at the rest of the statement. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Greek word moros. You want to get a, take a crack at the word <laughs> we get the, from that? <laughs> this is God's evaluation of our world system. It's like, oh, we're sophisticated. God's like, no, you're morons. (laughs) And then verse 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So, and this is the, we're going to see this three times. So. God abandoned them to do whatever their shameful hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal place or praise. That is why, here's the second expression, why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned in their lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he, number three, abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that never should be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness and sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. That's social media for you, isn't uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Verse 30. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Today, in America, we're we're watching our culture wrestle with the issue of gender confusion. You know what we just read? We We read how a culture gets there. See, that that's the thing. We we, we look at that as though it's an it's a subject within itself, and it's like, how do we how do we resolve this? And to be honest with you, I, I mean it will take God to shake this out because many of the people who are wrestling with gender confusion are victims of the culture. But what the Bible does tell us is the way a culture gets here, where we, where we res- can't resolve these issues, is because somewhere back up the line we flip God off with both hands and we said we don't want you, and we lost the designer. And when you lose the designer, you lose the design. And and when you lose the design, you lose functionality. And good morning, America. That's where we are today. And the silly thing is there's so many people today who are waving back and forth in the breeze. Whatever this culture tells them to think, they're like bobble-headed dolls. They just thunk them on the head and they go right along with them. Man, guys, we're in a clash of dynasties. Better know who God is. Better know which side you're on. Second thing that happens in the tribulation period is Satan and his dynasty is allowed to run basically unrestrained. This is a challenge for me. If God is in control of the universe, why does he allow Satan to basically run unrestrained for seven years? Well, let me ask you this. Isn't it true that sometimes the thing you can do that will cause a rebellious person to come face to face with what they're doing is just to allow them to do what they think they want to do. And God is saying to this culture that we live in right now that is so godless, God is like, you want me to step out of the room? I'll just step out of the room and let you experience whatever you want to experience. And that's why the tribulation partially is so bad. I'm so glad this ends with good news. Because we said at the beginning of this talk that this world system has turned against God from the very beginning. And God not only wants to bring you and me into his family, he wants to redeem the earth. He wants to bring the earth back to manufacturer settings. So who's going to be able to do that? If you have your Bible right now, I'm going to ask you to look at John. Uh, Re- excuse me, Revelation chapter 5. See, the, the thing about the tribulation is Satan is looking at it like his all-out final all-out rebellion against God. Jesus is looking at it like, I'm going to get the world back. So I want you to see how that, how that works out. If you have Revelation chapter 5, remember last week that I said the tribulation period is found in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation of what's going on in heaven during the seven years, and chapters 6 through 19 are what's going on in the earth. With that in mind, I just called you to chapter 5. What's going on? What do we expect to find? We're going to see a scene in heaven, and it happens while the tribulation is going on on the earth. And what's going to go on in heaven is going to give us insight to help us understand what's going on on the earth. You ready? Here we go. We're in Revelation chapter 5. John writes, and I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice. Oh, excuse me, I need to go back and read verse one. Let's go back to verse one. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Now, that doesn't mean a thing to you and me, but to Jewish people in the first century, they knew exactly what this was. I mean, this, this was not a mystery book. This was, not, um, <laughs> this was not a finance report. When they heard it was a scroll that was written on both sides and sealed. They knew exactly what it was. This was a deed. And on top of that, it was a certain kind of deed. It was a deed to property that had been lost. See, in the Jewish mind, their God was sacred. Their families were sacred. Their nation was sacred. But right after that was their land. You know, their land was their inheritance. They received it from their families, their their parents. They would pass it on to their children. Land was sacred to them. It was the land that God gave them. But hey. People in those days, they could get up against it just like we can. And so what they would do is they would start selling possessions to try to, you know, make ends meet. But then if that didn't work, ultimately they could get to the place where they would have to do the unthinkable. They would sell their land. Now here's how it would go down. They would go down to what we would call the city hall. And there would be the buyer and the seller. And at the city hall, they would take a scroll. And there would be writing on both sides. On the inside of the scroll would be the awful story of how the land got lost. When it was sealed up, I find it significant that that was always the side that was sealed because that would always be a painful story. There was no reason for nosy people to go down to the courthouse to find out what kind of bad things happened to a family that would cause them to lose their land. But on the back side of the scroll would be what it would take to get it back. And we know from the book of Ruth, I've covered that in another series, from the book of Ruth, that what it would take is it would take someone who was a relative. In fact, the word was kinsman. It would take a relative. Because after all, God wanted that land to get back into that family. And the closer the relative, the, the higher likelihood of that person redeeming. But that person would also not only have to be a relative, he would have to be financially able and qualified and wish to redeem it. So here's John. He's in heaven by God allowing him to see what's going on at the beginning of the tribulation. God the Father got a deed in his hand. On one side, the terms of what was lost. On the other side, what it would take to redeem it. John, John knows exactly what he's watching. He is watching the deed to this earth. On one side, how it got lost. And we know the story. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3. God surrend- He gave kingdom authority to Adam and Eve. And he said, hey, the world belongs to you and all your descendants. That's you and me. But what happened? Genesis 3. Satan came along, sold him a bill of goods. And they actually turned over the deed to Satan. That's why the world system is what it is. And John is watching. He knows how it got lost And he has an understanding of what it's going to take to get it back. With that in mind, let's pick it up in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is qualified, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven, that's interesting, no one in heaven or on earth, we might suspect that, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And we're not surprised, verse 4, John said, I begin to weep bitterly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Wait a second. No one can open the scroll. How about God himself? Do you realize that not even God himself can redeem this world? He's not. The only thing God can do is destroy us. God is a God of justice. And consequently, if God was going to perform an action on this world, his only choice would be to judge it and destroy it. So God can't redeem it? And then the angels can't redeem it because they're not not kinsmen. They're not relatives. And the problem with all the human race is we're all flawed and broken, aren't we? Why does John cry? Oh, this is so important to us today. I I think we'll feel this at the moment we hear it. John knows if nobody is worthy to open the scroll, it will just rock on forever like it is right now. And hate will always be here, and injustice, and racism, and greed, and abuse. The world will just rock on with Satan running his system and God restraining it. No wonder John cried. You know, I always think about Job whenever I read this. When Job was going through so much grief, He couldn't get a hold of God. And he said something in Job nine, verse thirty two. He speaks about God. He said he's not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. Job's like, I'm not God and I can't get to God. I just wish there was somebody who was human enough to put one hand on my shoulder and God enough to put his other hand on God's shoulder and bring us together. That is what John is looking for. He needs somebody who can go between, who is God enough to redeem this earth and yet human enough that as our kinsman redeemer, he could reach out with the other hand and bring us together. Rather. Read with me. Revelation 5.5. 5. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won already the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. Only Jesus is qualified. He earned it when he came into our world. That's what Christmas is about. He earned it when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. That's what Easter is about. And today, he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is waiting for the time when God says, that's it, that's the last person who's going to come into the family, and then he's going to break that seal, and when that happens, the tribulation will begin, but when all the smoke is cleared, this planet will be re- returned to manufacturer's settings, and never again will it know pain, never again will it know rape, never again will it know abuse, never again will it know racism, never again will it know theft or greed or any other kind of thing, the world will be the way it was meant to be when we were made in the first place. And Jesus will rule and reign. And I'll tell you, I'm looking forward to being there. That I can't wait for. <laughs> I'm four minutes into overtime. Let me just give you four conclusions and we'll get out of here if you want to. <laughs> Number one, the world's not going to go on forever like it is right now. I don't think it'll go on much longer. So the world as you know it won't go on for much longer. Number two, there are two dynasties with two destinies. Number three, you were born into the wrong dynasty, but right now you can change dynasties and change destinies. Number four, you have a personal invitation to deal directly with the king of the new dynasty. The Bible has said that we live in the age of grace, that no matter what you've done or who you've been or how you felt, you can come just as you are to the king of the new dynasty, Jesus, and invite him to come into your life, and he will transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. And you'll be forever secure. Hey, I wouldn't have made it that easy, but then I'm not God. But I'm so glad he did, because if he hadn't made it that easy, I wouldn't get in. Are you okay? Have you picked? It could be that you would just say, hey, Mark, I, I think this is all crazy stuff, and I just think that all the pop culture stuff that's going on in the world is cool. Hey, pick. Put your bet down. Put your bet down. Not me. I don't see anything I like here. I'm looking forward to a change. And if you're here today and you say, "Mark, that's that's what I want." I'm going to I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to pray a prayer and whether you're watching in south or north or online or wherever you're watching, I want to give you a chance to invite Jesus Christ to come into your life. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to pray a prayer slowly because the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to pray it slowly and give you a chance to decide if you want to say these words to God. Cool? You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner but I believe you love me anyway. I want to be transferred. I want out of the dynasty of darkness. I want in your kingdom. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And I believe he is the coming king. Please forgive me. Make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, right before you leave, I have a gift box that I put together for you. It's got a Bible just like I preach from. It's also got a book I wrote that'll answer a lot of questions and some enormously cool stuff. It is free. No strings attached. Nobody will hassle you. If you just prayed to receive Christ, I want you to leave here with it today. Go to any info center and say, I pray with Mark and they'll give it to you. See you next weekend. God bless.